Good morning. It's uh, very good to be with you uh, again. It's uh, been a while uh, on account of this whole uh, COVID thing that's uh, beset us. And um, isn't it wonderful to meet together again and, and uh, don't have to wear masks. I can see faces. You, you're forced to either frown or smile whenever I say something now. So, uh, so I can tell what's, what's happening there. And uh, it's uh, just, a, just a joy to be with you. I appreciate uh, so much uh, uh, being uh, led in worship this morning and the singing that we did and the affirmations that uh, Christ has died for us, that he took our sins upon him as he, as he hung on the cross. And uh, a couple of the songs we sang this morning mentioned the whole idea of the, of the resurrection. Um, I uh, uh, am quite active in a, in a Facebook group uh, which um, deals with the whole area of troubling passages of Scripture. And you may not um, understand this, and I don't understand it either, but there are people who are troubled by the fact that um, Jesus took our sins upon himself. And they don't like that idea that we have to claim forgiveness through the death of Jesus Christ. And they're not all that... Um, enthralled sometimes with the idea that Jesus rose from the dead and they want to deny they want to say that it's possible to deny both those things that Jesus died for our sins or that he rose from the dead they say it's possible to deny both those things and yet still consider yourself to be a Christian um, it's um, it's uh, unfathomable for, for me so whenever I come to a church like this and we sing those songs and affirm those truths. It does a lot of good for my soul. So very thankful for the worship we had this morning. Let me to ask you to turn to uh, Luke 20. Luke 20. And we're going to read um, a few verses there. Uh, Luke 20 and starting at verse 27 and going only through verse 36. Uh, the passage actually extends a little bit further than uh, what I'm asking us to read, but I want to end on that note in verse 36. Luke 20 and verse 27. Some of the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to Jesus with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry his widow and have children for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first one married a woman and died childless. The second, and then the third married her. And in the same way, the seven died, bearing no, leaving no children. Finally, the woman died too. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be, since the seven were married to her? Jesus replied, The people of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who were considered worthy of taking part in that age and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage. And they can no longer die, for they are like the angels. They are God's children, since 
they are children of the resurrection. Now, um, two or three months ago, uh, Christian churches uh, around the world, and I'm sure this one did as well, uh, joined in a very special and glorious service and celebrated the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. And we who believe that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead believe that we also are risen with him. That because he lives, we also live. And that right now, we who are believers in the Lord have new life in him. The Apostle Paul talks about this in Colossians when he says, since you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above. And again in Ephesians, Paul says, God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. In other words, in those passages, Paul talks about the resurrection, our resurrection, not as some far off event that we have to wait for, but as a present reality in the lives of those who believe in him. We are risen with Christ. And yet, Paul can also speak of the resurrection of believers in several passages as something that we have to wait for, hope for, long for. And in one passage, he even speaks about the future resurrection of believers as something which we have to strive to obtain. Listen to what he says in Philippians chapter 3. Paul says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Now, this is perfectly understandable, frankly. I think probably anyone could tell here that Paul is talking about two different kinds of resurrection. The one resurrection is that which takes place in our hearts. When we receive Christ Jesus as Savior and Lord, and he gives us new life in him as a present right now possession. The other resurrection has to do with the raising of our physical bodies at the last day. But let me mention a few more areas where this same kind of thing happens. And it is not so easily explained in terms of spiritual versus physical. Think about our status as sons and daughters of God. We believe that right now we are, through the new birth, the born-again children of God. The Apostle John says that the Father lavished his great love on us that we might be called the children of God. And then he adds emphatically, 
And that is what we are. We have been adopted into God's family. When we pray to God, we call him our father. We don't call him our future father-to-be. And even Paul says that we are right now sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And yet, listen to this passage from the 8th chapter of Romans. Paul says this, We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly, and then catch this, as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons. So notice that. On the one hand, we are already the children of God. We are adopted into God's family. And yet Paul talks about how we are waiting for our adoption. Or take the word salvation. If I were to ask you this morning, are you saved? I think you would probably, most of you who are here, would say yes. And we believe that we are saved right now. And Paul repeatedly tells his readers that salvation is a present experience in the lives of believers. Ephesians 6.8, Paul says, For it is by grace you have been saved. 2 Timothy 1.9, God who has saved us and called us to be a holy life. And Titus 3.4-6, But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. So, as you can easily see from these verses, those who believe in Jesus have already been saved. And yet, the scripture can also talk about our salvation as something that is still happening. Peter declares that believers are being filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy for they are receiving the goal of their faith, the salvation of their souls. And then Paul again talks about salvation as if it were something that we are still waiting for when he says this, he says, our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. So we are saved, and we're being saved, and we're waiting to be saved. Or take the word sanctified. Paul writes to the Corinthian Christians, who, by the way, were not at all model Christians, and tells them that they have been sanctified in the name of Jesus, by the work of the Holy Spirit. And yet Paul, when writing to the Thessalonians, who were model Christians, tells them that he is praying for them that God would sanctify them. So after a while, you begin to wonder what gives here. Is Paul a schizophrenic? 
Uh, can't he make up his mind? But wait, and here's the kicker, and it ties into the title of the message for this morning. Listen to what happens when Paul talks about the kingdom of God. In Colossians, says Paul, uh, Paul says that God has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and he has brought us into the kingdom of his son. In fact, you might remember if you read the old King James translation, it says that we have been translated into the kingdom of God. In other words, we are already in the kingdom. And yet there are other places in Paul's letters in which he talks about the kingdom as an inheritance that we have yet to receive. In the book of Hebrews, the author states, we are receiving the kingdom. And in the book of Acts, Paul says that we must go through many hardships in this life before we enter the kingdom of God. And even Peter gets in on that action. And he says that when we leave this life, we will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So how do we explain all this? Well, this is where that passage that we read earlier in Luke 20 comes in. The Sadducees come to Jesus trying to trip him up over a question about the resurrection. You see, the, the Sadducees were a religious sect in the Judaism of the day who were opposed to the Pharisees and they did not believe in the resurrection from the dead. Uh, in fact, uh, maybe you learned in Sunday school that cute little uh, mnemonic. The Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. Therefore, they were sad, you see. So they come to Jesus and they try to trick him into proving by his own words how ridiculous it is to believe in the resurrection and the future life in heaven. And the example they use is the woman who was married to seven brothers during her lifetime. Now, I don't know about you, I, I would, if I was brother seven, I would beg off on the whole issue. But nevertheless, they go to him and they tell him about this story with a woman who married seven brothers. And then they say, in essence, if you really believe there is going to be a resurrection, well, then tell us how God is going to get things all sorted out in the resurrection. If a woman has been married to seven different husbands, whose wife will she be in the resurrection? Perhaps there were some other questions the Sadducees asked, or they could have asked. Will babies be raised as babies? Or will they be raised up as 20-year-olds? Will old people be raised up as old people? Or will they be raised with the bodies of 20-year-olds or 30-year-olds or 40-year-olds? Will people be able to recognize each other? What are we going to do all day long? Will there be hunting and fishing? 
And if there is fishing, do you always have to throw the fish back? Will there be basketball and baseball and football and hockey? And if there are baseball and basketball and football and hockey games, will every game end in a tie? Are we going to eat food? And if we do eat food, do we still have to go to the bathroom? Will we still need sleep? Will we still need someone to cut our hair? Will men still have to shave every morning? Will women still need to use cosmetics? Will we need to wear clothes? Are we all going to play harps? What's it gonna look like? Are we going to live together in families? Or are we all going to have our own private suites? And if we do live together in families, how will that be set up? After all, there won't be any children if we all come back as 20-year-olds. Okay, well, I've added a few more questions than the Sadducees probably asked. Uh, but you get the general drift of what they're thinking and what, and what we might think today. Now, the interesting thing is that Jesus, instead of taking the particular example they raise and trying to run it through all the possible scenarios of how it might work out, chooses instead to answer them in such a way that shows how the very question they asked was proof of how ignorant they were. In fact, in a parallel account of this, in this of the same story in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew records that the very first thing Jesus said to the Sadducees was this, you are in error because you don't know the scriptures and you don't know the power of God. In other words, Jesus says, we're talking apples and oranges here. You're going up and down the AM dial looking for an FM station. You're trying to surf the internet with a 1980s Tandy Radio Shack computer laptop. And then Jesus goes on to give them the answer. The people who live in this age marry and give in marriage. But the children who will live in the age to come are the children of the resurrection. And they will live an entirely different kind of existence. You see, the Sadducees and the Pharisees as well were making a mistake very similar to what many people, even Christians, make today. They had this idea that when the Messiah came, the Messianic age would simply be a kind of a continuation of the present age. In other words, they thought, like many people think today, that heaven and eternity will simply be all the good things we know now raised to the nth degree. That heaven and eternity and all the joy and happiness and of this present life are raised to some kind of exponent of 10 or 20 or 30 or 100 or maybe even 1,000. But what Christ says here is that in the resurrection and the end of time, there will be a completely different kind of existence. And that the kinds of things that bring us joy and happiness now will not be the kinds of things that bring us joy and happiness then. It is kind of like what Paul says in 1 Corinthians when he declares, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived, 
what God has prepared for those who love him. But there's another problem out of this whole discussion that is perhaps even more fundamentally important for us. And it's this, it hasn't happened yet. And it was supposed to happen when the Messiah came. The Sadducees, the Pharisees, and practically all the different religious groups in Palestine expected, based on a fairly straightforward reading of the Old Testament, that when the Messiah came, he would bring an end to this present age and usher in the age to come. And of course, we believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And when Jesus was here on the earth, he himself announced that the kingdom of God was near, it was at a hand. In fact, he even said that the kingdom of God had come. But Jesus died, he rose from the dead, he ascended back to his Father in heaven, and things are going on just like they went on before. People still marry and give in marriage. They still go to the store and buy and sell. They still pay rent and purchase homes. They buy cars, drive them for a few years, and then they buy new ones. They still go to their jobs, get their paychecks, spend their money, go on vacations, and return to go back to their jobs again. They play games, they watch TV, they go to the movies, and they sit around and complain about politicians and taxes. They have children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren perhaps, and then they die. And this is true not just for non-believers, it's true for Christians as well. So how do we explain this? Well, the answer is simple, and yet it is profound. In some ways it's not very complicated, but it is a paradox, and it is simply this. The old model was that there were only two ages, the age in which we live and the age that was to come. And that when the Messiah came, the old age would come to a stop and the new age would begin. But what happened was that when Christ came, he changed the model. There are still two ages, the present age and the age to come. But now, for a period of time, the two ages overlap with each other. It's not the old age and then the new age, but it's the old age and the age to come overlaid on top of it. They go together. So those who put their trust in Christ are in fact raised with Christ. And yet they must live their lives in a world that is still characterized by death. And in bodies, as we've heard this morning, that are still dying. And they too must experience death and await that great day when their bodies too will be resurrected. They are children of the resurrection who must still live in the world that is characterized by darkness. 
Those who put their trust in Christ are in fact right now the children of God. Yet they must live in a world where the Heavenly Father is not honored and no special privileges are given to those who claim to be children of God. So they are waiting for their full adoption as sons and daughters of God. Those who put their trust in Christ know that they are saved from sin right now, yet they must live their Christian lives in bodies that constantly verify the truth of Christ's statement that the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Also, they must live their lives in a world which, as the songwriter Isaac Watts said, is no friend to grace. So they await that day when their salvation will be made complete and they will uh, finally be done with sin. Those who put their trust in Christ know that they have yielded allegiance to the King of Kings and that they have been translated out of Satan's kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of God's dear Son. Yet, they still have to live their lives in a world where Satan seems to have the upper hand and where Paul could still refer to Satan as the god of this age. And the apostle John could refer to him as the one who was control of the whole world. So those who have entered the kingdom of God are still waiting for the sons of God to come. So you see, we are the children of the resurrection. And we are sons and daughters of the kingdom of God who still have to live their earthly lives in the domain of one who has made a coup attempt against our king and who, as far as the empirical evidence is concerned, has to a large measure succeeded. We belong to the kingdom of God, but we must still live our lives in a world that is best characterized as the kingdom of darkness. That is our story. And that is our situation. Between two kingdoms, the children of the resurrection, or as the songwriter Michael Card, I think my favorite contemporary songwriter, says this, we are those who have been born of the spirit and who share incarnation with him who belong to eternity, stranded in time, and weary of struggling with sin. Or to give you another analogy, our situation is much like that in the days of Robin Hood and Ivanhoe. Uh, great King Richard the Lionhearted has gone off to fight in the Crusades. But in his absence, his evil brother John has taken advantage of the situation and has risen up and stolen the kingdom away. But King Richard is on the way back and Robin Hood and Ivanhoe and all their soldiers and merry men and many others who are loyal to King Richard are trying to hold things in check till the king returns. They go throughout the land of England fighting battles, conquering the enemy, defeating them, pointing their swords at their necks and saying, 
Do you yield allegiance to King Richard the Lionhearted? So you see, we're all Robin Hoods and Ivanhoes. We live in a world ruled by Satan, but we know full well that it really belongs to Jesus Christ, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And that one day he will return to claim his rightful throne. And now we go throughout the land persuading people to yield allegiance to the returning king. Now we don't do that with swords. We don't point them at their necks and say, do you yield? But we do do it with the sword of the spirit, the word of God, and the power of holy Christian lives. Okay, so that's the introduction to the message this morning. Uh, now, uh, <laughs> you like that, yeah, it's kind of, sorry, I don't want to panic you here. Um, I want to give you five words as we move toward the close. And these five words uh, will, I think, best describe how we, the children of the resurrection, have to live our lives between the two kingdoms, between the two ages. So let me give you just a few real quick words here about that I think apply to our lives as Christians. First of all, we have to live our lives paradoxically. We have to live our lives paradoxically. Note that when we came to faith in Christ, we did not get rid of all our problems. In fact, if anything, we only added to our problems. All too often, the appeal from the evangelist goes like this. Christ is the answer to all your problems. Believe in him, and all of a sudden, all those things that were going wrong in your life will begin to go right. But the truth of the matter is that when we surrender our lives to the Lordship of Christ, we actually add a whole new set of problems to our lives. Before, we only had to worry about dealing, living in one world, this present age. But now, we have to figure out how to live in two kingdoms at the same time. The kingdom of this world and the kingdom of heaven. And Christians who seriously try to be responsible citizens of the kingdom of heaven will find that life becomes one large paradox. We live in this world, but the decisions we make must constantly be controlled by our citizenship in another world. And it is this paradoxical character of the Christian life which in fact becomes one of our greatest evangelistic tools. As we make decisions on how we are going to live in this world, those who look on are constantly wondering what those crazy Christians are up to. Many will be turned off and they'll be repulsed by the decisions we make. But many others will be drawn and yield allegiance to the soon and returning king. Or again, as Michael Card writes, the power of paradox opens your eyes and blinds those who say they can see. Second, we must live our lives 
incarnationally. Jesus Christ came in the flesh, not only to die on the cross, but also that he might live among men and women on the earth. And this is the reason why we too have been left here as well. God has chosen not to transport us to heaven immediately upon our conversion, but to leave us here to be salt and light in the world. Ambassadors for the Prince of Peace, children of light in the dominion of darkness, the advance forces of the returning king, seeking and finding those who will pledge their loyalty to the Son of God. Third, we must live our lives radically. The kingdom of God is radically different from the kingdom of this world. And those who have yielded allegiance to the king of kings are called upon and expected to live lives that reflect the radical nature of the kingdom yet to come. Many times I have heard people say uh, that what we need to do in the Christian life is to live balanced Christian lives. And I believe I understand what they're saying, but I also want to say there's nothing balanced about the Christian life. You're either in or you're out. You're either all the way with Christ or you are against him. There are many people who say that we shouldn't go overboard and take our faith in Christ too seriously. I'm reminded of the story of the lady who was asked one time in the interview if she was a Christian. And she said, I am a Christian, but I try not to let it interfere with the way I live. But the Christian life has to be lived radically. We have to live our lives in such a way that every single thing we do is measured by its conformity with our status as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Or, as Paul says, we take every thought captive to make it obedient to Christ. We should be radical in the way we love God, in the way we love our brothers and sisters, we should be radical in the attempt to live holy lives. We should be radically good in a radically bad world. And those who see our love for God, our love for each other, and our holy lives will look at their own lives and realize that something is radically wrong and will transfer their allegiance from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. Fourth, we have to live our lives intentionally. That is, we must be purposeful in our existence. All around us, there are people who have no sense of purpose in life, no meaning, nothing to live for. And the only thing that keeps them from ending it all is, to use the words of the old Peggy Lee song, they're not quite ready for the final disappointment. But we're not like that, or at least we shouldn't be. Paul said he did not run aimlessly like a man beating the air, and neither should we. For we have been given a mission by our Lord to spread the gospel throughout the whole world, to disciple all nations, 
to prepare the way for the return of the great king. And as people see the resolve and determination that characterizes our lives, contrasted with the emptiness and the aimlessness that characterizes theirs, they too will want to become people with a mission in life. And fifth, we must live our lives joyfully. The Apostle Paul says in the 14th chapter Romans that the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. When we become Christians, as I said before, we inherit a whole new set of problems, but we also inherit a joy unspeakable and full of glory. And if anything characterizes a life lived in the kingdom of God, it is joy and a peace that passes understanding. We are aliens, pilgrims, and strangers here on the earth. But there is a special joy that God has given us as we make our journey through this life. And it is a joy that comes out in our singing, our praying, our working, our playing, indeed, in every area of our lives. And it is a joy that will cause others to want that same kind of joy. Finally, let me conclude here by saying just a word to anyone who is here today who may not yet have put their trust in Christ. I don't know if there is anyone like that, but in case there is, I have a word for you as well. And I have been authorized in my role as an ambassador for Jesus Christ, the King of the Kingdom of Heaven, to issue you an invitation to enter into the Kingdom of Christ. I invite you to come to Jesus with all your problems and double them. You will come to Christ with one set of problems and he'll give you another set. And you'll have to learn what it is like to march to the beat of a different drummer in this world which, has, which plays a different drum. I invite you to come and put your faith in Christ. But I would be doing you a disservice if I didn't at the same time warn you that a walk of faith is very much different from a walk by sight. And that sometimes you'll be called upon to do things by faith that will make no sense to all those who are around you, those who only walk by sight. I invite you to come and receive new life in Christ. But it is only fair to tell you that if you receive new life in Christ, you'll have to lose the one that you have now. All the things that you trust in now to give you power and prestige and worth will have to be laid down to receive this new life. For you are those, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, among those called upon to come and die as you enter into the kingdom of heaven. And let me invite you to come to Christ and receive a joy 
that you cannot possibly know anything about now. But again, I have to warn you, there is the distinct possibility that when you do, when you come to Christ and yield your allegiance to him, it may well be that the things that give you pleasure and happiness now will lose some or perhaps even all of their attractiveness. But let me assure you, the gain will be worth the loss. Because I declare to you, on the authority of Jesus Christ and upon the testimony of millions and millions of men and women over the past 2,000 years, that there is no single joy or any combination of joys in this world that compares with the joy of knowing Christ Jesus. For whose sake you may well lose all things, but will consider them to be rubbish, that you may gain Christ and be found in him. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with all of you as you attempt to serve as loyal subjects in the kingdom of heaven. Amen.